it's a it's an anointing with those, you know. It's an anointing for, for doing stuff with the equipment all the time. Um, I don't mind if we put the other lights on. I always ask for that, you know, because wearing glasses and glare. And Jim, would you flip those bottom the bottom row of sisters there? Oh, there you are. Now I can see you. I can aim. I can aim better now. I uh, I've shared this uh, Jewish. I guess you might call it. Uh, it's just a, a thing they've handed down through the generations verbally, a tradition, a, a story about the group of people that saw the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they made their signboards and their placards. You know, in our common or our vernacular for today, they would have put things like turn or burn or, uh, you know, repent, get right, you know, whatever negative comments to try and coerce people to change the way they live. And they took their boards and a couple hundred of them went to Sodom and Gomorrah and began to walk through the streets every day and just make a presence. And uh, slowly over the period of a month or two, they started with a couple hundred and then it was beginning to dwindle down to 30, 25. And, you know, this quit coming out because nobody was changing. Nothing was happening. Until finally at the end of this event, there was just this one elderly gentleman who would go out every day with his sign and walk the streets all by himself. One of the young boys in Sodom came up to him one day and said, Hey, uh, what's the deal? Everybody else has given up. What's with you? Why do you keep coming out with your sign? We think you're going to do any good here? He said, Son, when I first came to this city, I really believed that we would make a difference. And that if we would come and announce this message and make the awareness that people would change and turn and repent. He said, so now, because that hasn't happened, I come out every day and do this so that this town doesn't change me. Every day. So this thing doesn't change me. You know, there's a, a diligence and a vigilance that's necessary for us as believers to learn how to swim upstream and to keep swimming upstream. How to stand against what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to this world, right? Don't be conformed to this world. It's, it's got its little hammers out every day pounding on us, trying to shape us into a particular... Uh, likeness of itself. You know, when, when Paul used those words in Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to the designs. The word in the Greek is schematic. You know, schematic for most of us guys, we like those sort of, sort of things. It's a diagram of how, how something works, how everything's connected. And where if you, you know, if your washer and dryer doesn't work, then somebody's going to come and open a schematic and find out where all the switches are and they're going to test each point until they figure out where the breakdown is. Paul says don't, don't let the schematic or the design of the world conform you. It's a constant thing we find. Constant. Now, let's take it another step and uh, this will probably be, well, I don't think you're going to like this message. 
I'm ready to go home now. Because if we take the next step, that's obvious. Don't be conformed to the world. We, we all agree with that, right? We don't want to be. We find it difficult and the pressure of it, but it, it, it grabs us all the time. I don't know, anybody do any, you know, Black Friday shopping? Or ready for Cyber Monday? Or do you out there and stand in line? I didn't do any of that, but, you know, I mean, there's a, they design things for us to participate in all the time. Now, let's push that aside. And, and what if, what if some of the ways we do church are at the least counterproductive? at the worst, anti-biblical. What if we're the problem? What if we've made shapes and forms and things that we conform people to and say this is the way it ought to be done all the time? And we find out that it doesn't produce the biblical results that Jesus is after. Now we're the problem. Now we need to bring our signs in here and march around and say, wait a minute. I don't want you to change me. Now, I know it takes time for that to happen. It's, a, it's the proverbial frog in the kettle thing, if you're, you're familiar with that. You know, you put the frog in the pot and turn the heat up underneath, and he'll just sit there until he's boiled to death because he adjusts slowly to the climate and the temperature of the water until it finally just cooks him, and he won't jump out. You know, we're like that even in the church. We come and we do things over and over and over and repetitive, uh, repetitive learning. We do it a certain way and uh, it's predictable. And we might leave after years of that participation and wonder when we're driving home, why am I not getting the results I think I should be getting from my Christian life? Don't you just hate this message already? <laughs> I remember my first trip in, into the mission field overseas and, and that coming home and literally wanting to get off the plane and kiss the ground thing. You know, you've seen it depicted by military people and things of that nature. But I, I remember flying into Latvia, you know, Riga, Latvia, right after the curtain came down in 1991. I was there and, and I was so excited to go. And I'm on this plane and, and as we're coming in to land it never occurred to me I was flying into a country that had been under communist rule for more than 70 years uh, people are not a priority in communist nations or you, you really don't have much value as an individual and we're coming down and I'm looking at this runway that is filled with potholes I mean big holes and I'm thinking we're going to shear the landing gear right off this plane <laughs> And I'm going to go to heaven before I ever get to tell anybody about Jesus <laughs> in this country. It was just scary. What does that have to do with anything, though? I don't know. I'm just a story. <laughs> but you come home and, and you kind of kiss the ground for that moment and you say, um, it's good to be back in my norms back into my cultural surroundings that I'm familiar with, back into the 
little pot that my frog sits in. But I, I didn't question for a long time some of the stuff I'm questioning now. Um, I, I pastored in this church for 28 years. I've been a part of this congregation for over 40 years. This is the only church I've ever really been a part of since I gave my life to Christ. I mean, I gave my life to Christ. I was part of another congregation for less than a year, <coughs> came to Christian Center, and stayed here since 1971. And so... It's conspicuous that the things I may attack are the things that I helped put in place. So now you're not the problem. I'm the problem. What do you think of that? Now I hate this message. <laughs> well, let me try. This is a message with no notes, which lasts until 2 p.m., right? If you don't have notes, you don't know where you're really. I'm kind of feeling my way around. I'm going to try and get it into something usable, I hope. Bev, stop me if I don't, okay? Um, can I go ahead with this? We have, I have, you know, we, many of us took place with this uh, seminar recently with Dr. Leah Coulter. And uh, rediscovering the power of repentance and forgiveness. Is this okay or we need the front lights off? It doesn't matter if it's, is it viewable okay? I'm just going to show you a bunch of books here that, that have troubled me lately. They, they, they're well written. They're well thought out. Um, I believe the books that I'm going to show you are biblical. You can trust them. I know the authors. You can trust them. And yet they're attacking my mind. They're rattling my thinking. They're shaking up my theology. What's your theology? Your theology is that's the study of God. Theo, right? It's like we used to tell our kids at our house, you know, there's, this is not a democracy. This is a theocracy in our house, and my name is Theo. <laughs> so, we live in a theocracy where God is in charge of everything, amen? I'm not Theo. And our theology, or, or the way we understand God, the way we participate with him. A lot of it comes by experience for us. We experience God before we understand him, right? I mean, when we come to Christ and we ask him to forgive our sins, we know very little except for we're immediately confronted with the fact that we've offended him and that our offense is going to separate us forever from his presence. And that there is a heaven, there is a hell, and now there's a choice to be made and a decision to be confronted with that says, will I receive him as my savior and allow him to forgive my sins. And I remember praying that prayer, as I've shared hundreds of times, downtown behind Jack in the Box with a couple of people I didn't even know. But I recall bowing my head with them in prayer, asking Jesus to forgive my sins. And when I got done praying, I knew something happened. I felt it. A lot of people don't feel it. I felt it. Did you? Yes. I, I, that weight that had been on my life of sin and offense toward God was lifted by the grace of God and by the power of Jesus and the cross and the blood. All those things that I now know about. But in that moment, I knew nothing. I didn't know God. I was just being introduced to him. I knew about him. I knew things about him, but I never walked with him. I never experienced talking with him and having him talk back. I'd never spent a lot of time in his word to know 
his character and nature as revealed in the Bible. So we come to know God by our experience a lot of times. That's okay. I like that. Roman Catholicism had a mentality that said, we have to civilize people. This goes back into the, you know, we're talking 400 to 650 A.D. We have to civilize people, teach them to read and write and understand things before we can Christianize them. And it was a methodology that swept the world. And if there were people, and I'm going to share with you some of those people this morning just briefly, if there were people who couldn't read and write and understand uh, a, a clear definition of theology, then they were bypassed because they couldn't be Christianized if they weren't civilized. I hold the reverse to be accurate. I hold that we bring Christ into whatever civilization exists and whatever culture is present, and we let him invade their culture and let him come and descend and forgive their sin and release their brokenness and their heart into the freedom of being forgiven, and then they can get civilized after that. And I don't, I, I was ruined by one of these other books in this thinking. Let me get through my book list and then I'll focus on a couple. Uh, this is backwards to me, right? Okay. Living from the Heart Jesus Gave You. Some of us recall this or you've read it. It the Life Model book. Anybody? Foreign to most of us, right? Dr. Jim Wilder and his team uh, right here in Southern California. It's just a book about understanding how that God wants us to live in joy and full of him and in relationship with one another and how healing and life flows in the body of Christ. Great book. This is a 15th anniversary edition. I stole most of these these pictures from Amazon this morning. This is their latest book, the same team, Dr. Wilder, Ed Corey, Chris Corsi, and Sheila Sutton. I had the privilege of eating lunch with uh, two out of four of those recently in Pasadena, and... They are on a mission to help people understand Jesus and joy and how to reshape and retrain your mind to experience relationship with other people that brings healing and life. Again, very experiential, but biblical. And uh, Dr. James Wilder calls himself a neurotheologist. And that's a new field where you're taking neurology and combining it with theology and helping us understand, even in our physiology, how we're made up by God, how he built us, and how he, in fact, Dr. Wilder would tell us that every individual that's ever been born into the world has two very common traits. And God deals with both of them specifically in his word. One of them is that we need joy. And I'm not going to give you a book report. It's just, this is another book that's ruined me. You know, I started this story about going to the mission field and coming home and kissing the ground. I also came home from that trip saying I was ruined as a Christian. I came home realizing that God wasn't an American. I mean, I'd read in the Bible Jesus was born, you know, in a manger just like we're heading into this season and and that it wasn't in our country. But somehow we think God's American. And he sees life the way we do. And some of these things have, have ruined me for that. This is real fuzzy. My apologies. Again, stolen copies off the Internet. The Relational Disciple. This is by Joel Comiskey. Most of you are aware that I work with Joel. 
Uh, I'm hanging around with him. He's a good friend. And he's written now over 30 books. And this one, again, is about how to, how to help disciple other people. And the fact that this other word is tied in is what's important to me this morning, relational. It's relational, experiential. We go through life together. We don't live in isolation. See, in America, we live in isolation. We're very individual. This is the part of the message you don't have to like. We're individualistic. We are fiercely independent. And if you think of nations and their foundings and how things progress through history, appreciate Josh bringing to us this comment from history this morning from Peter Marshall, The Light and the Glory, great, excellent book. Should have been up on the list here probably <laughs> as a recommended reading. Is that we, we need each other gathering together with five grains and giving thanks, hearing the word of God and sharing what little you have wasn't the food that was sustaining them entirely. It was relationships. I mean, even if it came down to saying, well, if I die, I won't die alone. It's not the fear of a lot of people. It's a great fear. Not just death, but we fear dying alone. I've spent time with people who are dying. It's a fear. I don't want to be alone. Why? For me, I'd like to go in my sleep. It'd be okay with me. Just not wake up here, wake up there. That's awesome. And as long as I'm married, I hope I wouldn't be alone. If I'm asleep, I should be next to her, at least. That's going to be a terrible morning for her. Sorry. <laughs> it's a race. It's a race to see who goes first. Who's going to have the bad day, me or her? <laughs> now the, the movie The Notebook comes to mind. I don't know if you... Wow, maybe we could pull that off, huh? Just, anyway. We are so... F- I would imagine that this title even would not attract you to read the book if you're fiercely American. Because the, the idea, the concept of having to be relational... Is foreign to us. Uh, Joel just finished this book. In fact, this book comes out December the 6th. I've, I've already read it because um, I have that privilege of getting to look at the editing copies along the way. Making Disciples in the 21st Century. We're here. Some of us never thought we'd see the 21st century, but we're here. We arrived a decade ago, and things are Different. So Joel approaches this topic about how are we going to do it in the 21st century? What is it going to take? And a lot of it, again, comes down to needing to be in relationship. Biblical foundations for the cell-based church. You know, I'm, I'm a proponent of cell-based church, and if you're unfamiliar with that, my apologies. It simply means that we dwell together in small groups, and we experience life together in little cells. It's very much like building an army. You know, you've got a whole army covers the globe or a Navy or an Air Force, but if you find its smallest component, you're probably going to end up with like a sergeant and about 10 guys, right? little group. And they are an entire army within themselves, but added together, they make up the giant corporate structure of an army around the world. The church is very, very similar, cell-based. Of course, the idea is that uh, the cells of our bodies reproduce and, and every cell has its own 
DNA and lives in and of itself and can survive fairly, fairly well and make a new one after its own kind. And that's the idea with the church. That's how it's, the church has grown over the centuries since the disciples. Jesus had a cell group, if you will, 12 guys. Mm-hmm. And, and look what he did with that. <laughs> Made it all the way to you. The gospel's still working the same way. And I'm a proponent of this, that, that in order for us to truly live life to the fullest, as Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, that we can experience it like Jesus wants us to if we struggle to hang on to our American independence. And I told you I didn't have any notes, so I'm, I'm floundering here. And I'm remembering things I started to say and I didn't say and didn't finish. And here's another one, if I can remember it. What was it? When you think of how nations grow and how history expands, and I mentioned the Peter Marshall book, how was America defined as a nation? Well, it was, fortunately, a lot of it was defined by people like the Puritans who came here to be out from under religious oppression in order to worship freely what God was showing them to do. But every 4th of July is the telltale for America. What are we celebrating? Independence Day. We want to be independent. We want to be free. We want our freedoms. We want to live any way we want to. We've become pretty amoral, you know, secular. Secular humanism runs rampant. It designs our schools. Our higher levels of education are being run over by these structures that say just live any old way you want to. Whatever's good for you is good for you. And that's all there is. You. You're the center of life. You know, secular humanism says you're God. You're the center. Do everything for you. Right? You know, it's not... It's not do unto others as you would have them do unto, unto you. It's do unto others and then split. Get out of the way. So th- a, a design for a congregation or the body of Christ, I'm just, it's, a, it's a terminology. It's a way of doing things. It's a methodology. But cell-based means that we're going to organize ourselves into these smaller groups where we can experience life together. It's nothing new to us. It's maybe new terminology, but... Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together in His Kingdom. He died in a bad way. But he put himself into a situation at the ending of his life where he lived together in community with other believers. They weren't all the same. We're all from the same background, all the same theological premises. But when it came down to it, they were captives, and they were living it out in their captivity. And they were giving their lives for it. Why? Because it was worth dying for. Look at the first cell group, if you want to talk about Salvation Church, the disciples, the apostles. They believed also that living in the community of Christ, living with him, having walked, talked, and breathed, and eat, slept with him, was worth dying for. I don't know that we could go onto the streets today and ask any really, you know, fiercely July 4th kind of American, is this willing to die for? Are you willing to die for this? Oh, not yet. 
Nah, it's not worth that to me. I, I can st- I'll live independent of that. That's okay. I mean, you kill them, I'll be okay by myself. <laughs> if you want to read a book that will change your thinking and revolutionize your mind and your heart, this is it. And the church was a family. Joseph Hellerman. He's a professor of New Testament and right here at Biola in Southern California. This will mess with your head and it'll change your heart. Now, I'm not, you know, if you're visiting here this morning, we actually do believe in the Bible too. <laughs> we use it. I'm not, I'm not bypassing it. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I've done this before. You know, did they use the Bible there? <laughs> yeah, we do. When the church was a family, the first sentence in the introduction, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People, well, let me, let's continue. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. And this is just the introduction. We're not even off of page one. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. This book for me is pointed to the scriptures in a new way that ruins me. Like coming home from the mission field, being a ruined Christian, so you can never see the Bible the same way again. You come home and you go, God's not an American. Holy cow! What am I going to do with that? There are others who see Jesus differently. Not just because they might put a, a picture up on the wall in Kenya that's, that he's black. I'm not, not talking about seeing him differently that way. That's not accurate. You know, Jesus was Jewish, right? He was born in a certain place, had a certain skin tone. I mean, he wasn't black, but he is everything we need in any culture or nation. True. But there are a lot of countries and cultures where it isn't dependent on a building at all. Church is not a building. Church is you and me. Staying together, working through the junk, the, conf- the, the conflicts that we experience, 
right? And staying put. You know, I can argue with you, but you can't leave me. So there. <clears throat> you can argue with me, and I can't leave you. That's just so frustrating, but it helps me grow. Let's just keep banging our heads together until we get it figured out. And as Paul said, put on love as the overcoat to everything else. Love one another. The Apostle John, love one another. Oh, this message, it comes to life so differently. When somebody can, you know, like Hellerman here, can smack me upside the head and say, have you thought about this? I said, didn't even think of it. Why? Because I grew up in this country. Because I grew up swimming in this stream of American individual independence where we're isolated from one another even though we're surrounded by millions. There are already studies done on things like Facebook and Twitter and social media that says conclusively, already conclusively, that social media does not make us closer. It separates us further. If you're living your life in Facebook, yeah, have a good time. It's a great way to get the message out. I put it in there last week myself. I need another car. Not personally. Aaron De La Borda is coming from Mexico City. Our pastor from Mexico City is coming December 16th. And he's going to be here for nearly three weeks. Not with us at all. He's coming on vacation to America. Yay! He's going to go to Disneyland probably. Bringing his oldest daughter and his two grandchildren. But he doesn't have any wheels when he gets here. So I said, hey, can you get me a car? Yeah, we can get you a car. Somebody's got one. We're Americans. We've got a lot of them. Somebody's got one. So I put it on Facebook. I need another car. But you know what? I don't really have a lot of hope that anybody's going to respond because we need our cars. We're, we're, no, I need my car. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly give up my car for three weeks. I know I have a second one in my driveway, but no, I don't, I don't use that one. I need my car. You hear what I'm saying? This is American independence. I own it. It's mine. It's my stuff. And my stuff's more important than relationships. Careful. Think about that one. I hope this irritates you today. It's irritated me for some time. I'm just sharing my irritation. Is that we are so focused on our stuff and our things and our... All that. You know, this book will go on to tell us that most people's closest relationship are the people at work. Not even inside their family. It's their people at work. Why? Because they spend most of their time with them. Let's see if I can get another something out of here that will injure us together. Oh, you'll like this. Maybe. This is the title here in this page, The Cost of Our Freedom in Decision-Making, Individualism and a Therapeutic Culture. I'll just give you a little piece. We have no accurate statistics on the number of people in therapy in 21st century America, but no one can dispute the fact that there has been a tremendous increase in the number of mental health professionals serving the American public since World War II. You might be seeing a therapist yourself. You almost certainly know someone who is. I have seen a therapist in the past. One of my daughters is doing so as I write. We turn to psychologists and to medication to assist us in dealing with the stress and emotional upheaval that inevitably come 
on us in a society that emphasizes self-reliance and individual autonomy at the expense of relational support and accountability. It might surprise you to learn that our therapeutic culture is relatively recent, a relatively recent phenomenon in world history. As others have observed, the origin and popularity of clinical psychology can be directly traced to the increasingly individualistic slant of Western relational values. In other words, the great majority of people on this planet never needed therapy until society began to dump the responsibility for making life's major decisions squarely upon the lonely shoulders of the individual. Our freedoms, as intoxicating and exhilarating as they often are, have pushed us over the edge emotionally. We are re reaping the consequences of decisions that were never meant to be made and lives that were never meant to be lived in isolation. Psychotherapy's very methodology reflects our fragmented isolationist worldview. One of the most fascinating aspects of the field is that the therapeutic relationship itself mirrors the perspective of the society that has birthed and nurtured it. As early as 1976, <clears throat> the authors of an important work entitled Mental Health in America astutely observed that psychoanalysis and psychiatry is the only form of psychic healing that attempts to cure people by detaching them from the society and the relationships therein. All other forms, listen to this, shamanism, faith healing, prayer, all of these bring the community into the healing process. Instead, or excuse me, indeed, use the interdependence of patients and others as the central mechanism in the healing process. I, I know that's a lot, and I won't, I won't go any further. Things like that just mess with my head. And I look around and I've dealt with a lot of people over the years and a lot of hurting people. And I read things like this and I go back to the Bible and I open it and I think, my goodness, we are so far off course. And I have been one to help it right along for nearly 40 years. And now... I'm looking at maybe the next 20 years and thinking, what can I do about that? How can I help it be different? How can I go to the same people I've, I've promoted some things with and say, you know what, I did it wrong. I, I told you wrong. I steered us in the wrong direction. Uh, I, I probably shouldn't tell this story because it's being recorded. <laughs> Before I knew Christ, I knew drugs. They were my friends. And uh, I, I grabbed my little brother, who's four years younger than me. He's not little. He's bigger than me, so he's my younger brother. But anyway, nonetheless, I got him one day, and we, I showed him how to do drugs. Right? And he said, hey, let's do this. So we did this. Then I met Christ. And I realized, oh, drugs are not my friend. And so I went to my little brother and said, hey, drugs aren't our friend anymore. He goes, well, they might not be your friend. Right? And, and so that's, the, that's a little picture of what I'm trying to say about Christianity here is that we often take what we believe to be good for us and give it to somebody else 
tell them this is the way we do it, and then later on we find out that's not how it works best. We go back to them and say, well, I like doing it this way, so tough. You go do it that new way. I'm sticking with what I know. And so, to accuse us, I hope we're family enough for me to get away with this this morning. So next week we'll come back and we'll do it all the same way again. I'm just attacking the Sunday morning for a moment. I love Sunday morning. I'm not against it, okay? Don't misread this. I'm just saying that we won't take thought enough when we leave here, perhaps, to say it will be any different. We'll just wait for Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and we'll go, oh, it's Sunday. We'll go sing again. I don't know some of those songs, but I'll give it a try. And I don't know that tune, but okay. And I know the person next to me doesn't want me to sing. <laughs> so... Wishes I wasn't here. Well, I'm going to give a shot. I don't know why we even do that, but that's the way I've always done it. You know, I really enjoyed this morning. Not to exclude anything. I'm not saying I didn't like something. I'm just saying what I really liked, above all, was that moment when we finally got quiet enough to let some of you share faith and to hear from the Word. I wrote them down. They're important to me. I heard Isaiah 40:11. He will lead his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm, the youngest, and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead those who are with young. And I thought, that's, that's Jesus. I want to see Jesus. Don't you? you? come here. I came here to see you, yes, but if we together could see Jesus, whew, now we're getting somewhere. Anyway, what do we got next here? Nothing. We have nothing. <laughs> my thoughts are, my thoughts are trying. You, you forward me one. Thank you. Now, how many of you like Celtic stuff? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you should run out and get this book and just really radically turn your, turn your life upside down. Amen. George Hutter the Third. You think this is a book review morning, right? <laughs> I'm, I hope I'm making a biblical point for us. I'm just saying that I've read all these books. I was going to bring the books I read in the last five years. They're in a tub. I mean, I was going to plop it down here and not review every one of them. That wasn't the point. It's just this, to impress you. <laughs> he really does know how to read, that guy. <laughs> the Celtic Way of Evangelism by George Hunter III examines an old way of loving Jesus. I mean, you know St. Patrick. Hey, hand me that four-leaf clover, right? And green beer. I'm not into green beer. I'm just saying we have a view of St. Patrick that's just kind of almost mythical. He's a real guy. And he and his people who followed him in uh, 400 A.D. and on nearly evangelized everyone in Ireland. Some 500,000 people who were barbarians. Is it okay to call people barbarians? What's a barbarian? Well, they don't read, they don't write, they just kind of live of the earth, they're kind of rough and tumble. Sometimes they paint their face blue and attack the neighbor. <laughs> I'm going to try to make it historically funny. <clears throat> May I? Another simple introduction. 
for the point. When the first edition of this book was published, as the third millennium began, it was published in 2000. This is the second in uh, 2010. The Western, when this book was published, the third millennium began, the Western world, I'm attacking us, the Western world. The Western world faced populations that were increasingly secular, people with no serious Christian background or memory, unfamiliar with what Christians believe, experience, and live for. These populations were increasingly urban as they left their traditional communities and became immersed in the city's crowding, competitiveness, and consumerism. They often felt disillusionment or alienation. And removed from nature, they were out of touch with God's natural revelation. These populations were also increasingly postmodern. They had given up on the Enlightenment's ideology and promises. They became more peer-driven, feeling-driven, and right-brained than their forebears. Furthermore, these populations were increasingly neo-barbarian. Hey, he's talking about us. You barbarian. You neo-barbarian. Write it down. You want to go home and look it up. And see what I'm calling you. You come back next week and say, I can't believe you called me a neo-barbarian. In church. They lacked the etiquette, the refinement, the class, and other traits of, quote, civilized people. And their lives were often out of control. These populations, we're talking about us in the last 10 years. These populations were also increasingly receptive, exploring worldview options from A to Z, that is, from astrology to Zen. They were looking for a life, but, as we say, in all the wrong places. With the publication of the 10th anniversary revised edition of the Celtic Wave Evangelism, the West's mission, the West mission's fields today are much like they were a decade ago, but more so. More people are more secular, more urban, more postmodern, and neo-barbarian today. Recent history has added at least two features in the last decade, evangelical Christianity has lost some public credibility, and atheism has now become almost as chic in Great Britain and the United States as in continental Europe. In the face of this changing post-Christian Western culture, more church leaders than before are now clear that our churches are placed in mission fields. And more churches have moved to a more apostolic or missional understanding of their main business. I am told, and he goes on to say that his book had some influence on this, on this change of thought. I want to write to him and say, well, you certainly nailed me. I am told that this book's first edition contributed to that paradigm shift. The majority of Western church leaders, however, are still in denial. They still plan and do church as though next year will be 1957. So his book here, he says, I continue to commend and interpret an ancient model 
from which Western Christians can draw as they face the daunting challenge of reaching this mission field. What, what is that? It's the Celtic way of evangelism. And, and, and I will give you a quick book report on that one. If you can imagine this, Patrick, without giving you his whole history, ends up in Ireland. And they're barbarians. They don't have a written language. They, everything's communicated verbally. The Roman church, if we had a map we could put up, do you know where Ireland is? I, I actually look up these things so I know. <clears throat> it's out there in the ocean, just west of Great Britain and the United Kingdom, right? It's out there well, on your side of the map. Sorry, it's over here. Um, think of this. Rome down here is spreading its Roman church. Roman church is done a certain way. I mean, you got to have a priest, you got to have a bishop, you got to have certain people involved and structures, and you got to have a building. I mean, there's certain things that just got to be that way. And so they're spreading across Europe. And they spread, but they stop before they cross this little space of water and they go, that island out there, it's unreachable. Why? What did I tell you earlier? Oh, thanks. <laughs> Look at those guys. Deal. Out there. They stop before they cross the water because those people are barbarians. They're, they're heathen. I mean, yeah, they're supposed to come to know Christ, but they can't read. They can't write. They're not civilized. And we believe you have to civilize first and then Christianize. Patrick said, hey, what do you say we Christianize? And then we'll civilize. And so he penetrated Ireland with what George Hunter calls monastic communities. I'll, I'll go as quickly as I can because I know you're thinking about lunch already, right? What are you having for lunch, by the way? Let's <laughs> <laughs> just stop and think about that just for a second. Mm, yeah, I sure hope he hurries up. This to me is almost more important than eating, and I'm not going to press that upon you. It's just it feels that way. Amen. Is that they would go in to a barbarian village. There were no roads to speak of. There were cow paths from village to village. And these people were nomadic. They moved around because they needed grazing and they would go wherever they needed to go. They weren't planted anywhere. They lived all over the island. But they weren't community-based in, in, in the way we would think of by, by cities. So Patrick would take a group who had committed to live together in community and it would have, you know, this couple of priests and a couple of bishops and maybe as many as 50 people who had left Great Britain over there, the United Kingdom, to come across and to invade the Celts as Celtic people themselves. And they would go to the tribal chief or the village captain or whatever he was called and they would present Christ to him and see if they could win him to Jesus. If they did... Great. If they didn't, they still went the same process. They said, we would like to live nearby you. We would like to build a community nearby you. We don't want to take over your little village or your town and ruin your thing. We just want to know if you would sort of bless us with the ability to live close. Could we do that? And they said, sure, you could just live out there wherever you want to live. Fine, live nearby. And they would literally build a community in which to live. Very specific. Think of two concentric circles, a large circle built out of a stone wall. Right? And you've seen those. I have one picture of this in my kitchen, a beautiful piece of art from your sister. It's called Rocks of Ages. It shows one of those rock walls that you would see out on the moor. 
Yeah? Oh, wait, the more. That's probably English. Sorry, we're talking about someplace else. They would build a rock wall around a large space. And then they would go a little further in and build another one inside of it. And there was a gate and a portal in which to go through both. The community would live inside the second circle. They had everything they needed inside their agriculture. They would grow their food. They, everybody had a job. Even the kids had a job. They would meet twice a day to worship Jesus together. And then they would all go to their responsibilities. Some would be grazing animals outside the second circle in the greater area around them. And they lived like this. And then they would go in and out of this little other community that they were living nearby to. And they would begin to find the people who were having marriage problems or needed healing or needed prayer or needed ministry of some kind. And some would take uh, the, the, uh, the unwed mother out of wedlock, rejected by the tribe, rejected by the clan. And they would take her back. And they built houses in between the two circles. If you can see the circles, they built little houses inside. And the, the very best view of everything, they would build a host house and they would take that young girl or the broken marriage couple or whoever was experiencing problems and they would let them live in that house. They had the best view. They would feed them and take care of them. I should have drawn a couple circles. It's easier for me to see. Imagine this. It was specifically stating, even in the geography of what they were doing, the, the structure, when you, when you come to us, we're living in community with Christ. Well, that's what we're doing. You're not. You're in the world. You're on the outside of the second circle. What we would like to do is invite you to come in and live with us. However, we know you've not made any commitment to serve our God. You don't know him. He knows you, but you don't know him. So we're going to let you live between the two walls, which means you're out of the world, but you're not in the body. And they lived there, and they felt it. They said, you're invited to everything we do. When we meet to worship, come be with us. When it's time to eat, come eat with us. We'll bring you food. We'll take it. We'll pray for you. We'll minister to you. We want, we want you to experience the love of God. They interviewed some of these people that went from this living in this host house, if you will, into the community of Christ. They said, when did you become a Christian? And they would say, I don't know. I don't remember. I just... I just began to know who he was. And then I knew he knew who I was. And, and then I was absorbed into the community of these people. We loved God together. And I became a believer. And they would say to them, well, would you like to be baptized? And follow Christ? They would say yes. Well, then they had to move out of the host house. Because now they were on the inner circle. Now, Patrick and his followers, for hundreds of years went from place to place. And what they would do is they would take some of the people that were converted in that first village with them, and they would take part of this community, and they would grow out into another one and do it over and over and over. History shows that in Ireland, the, the word C-I-L-L is the word for church. I don't speak the language, Welsh or whatever. But there are 6,000 places in Ireland that have that attached to the end of the community name. And this historically tells them that Patrick's reach, you know, Christ Church, if you will, would be like Christ Sill. So, you know, like for us, it's sort of like Taylorville or Tunnelville or Moralesville, whatever. It's 
they added that on the end of the name of the community because there was a church there. Now, there were no churches in Ireland. And when Patrick and his crew got done with the Celtic way of evangelism, as this book talks about, 6,000 communities had churches. And they weren't, they were just rough and tumble, sticks and mud and stuff they would put up where they could gather. It wasn't about the Roman church influence, building cathedrals and levying heavy wages over people's lives to build things. I've been in the, you know, in Socolo, central Mexico City, and looked at the cathedral, walked through that place, and watched women, your ages, crawling on bloody knees to get there to be healed. And inside is opulence, gold, layers. And I, I, I just think there's something wrong there. Most of us who would walk in go, why don't they sell this and help them? No, no, no. That's not how you do church. And I'll see you next Sunday. <laughs> Am I rattling anything? I'm not attacking the Catholic Church. That's not my point. I mean, all of us do it. We've got our own. You know, we want carpet and soft chairs. And we want to do church a certain way. Patrick said, let's take it to where they live. Let's live in community. Let's see if we can't find a handful of people who will say, I'll give up everything and move with you wherever we're going. And we'll figure it out when we'll build it when we get there and we'll live it out together. And we'll be utterly dependent upon Christ. And see Christianity spread like that in a few centuries, reaching 500,000 people evangelizing entire nations. Uh, Can I go to the last slide? Or you can just put it up. I'm talking about an experiential lifestyle in Christ that is biblical, where we do it together, where we maybe don't like each other all the time, and we work it out. I mean, Sandy, how much have you had to put up with me over the years? Oh, my <laughs> goodness. I can imagine. I'm putting words in her mouth, and she may not actually say these things. She's going home saying, that guy is such a knothead. I can't... <laughs> You know, I went to ask him for prayer and help, and he told me a bunch of stuff. What good is that? I don't know if that's true, but, but there was a time when I actually tried to fix her vacuum cleaner. I remember that. It's kind of living in community. It's like you come for prayer, I fix your vacuum. And maybe I was reaching for something I needed. I don't know. I, I wanted to be at your house. And, does God believe in atheists? This, this is a deceptive picture because the book is this fat. It's not one of these. And the, my only reason for putting this up here, this is a, more about apologetics and, and history and how we've gotten to where we be, what we believe today from all through history. It's a, it's a major work and an excellent book. I put it up for this single reason for this morning. Not necessarily to recommend it, but to say we can't have all of our relational Christianity work without also having a strong theology. And we can't just bypass it and say, woohoo, we're believers. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> but man, I like it. I mean, I just walk with talk with Jesus and he talks back and I love it and it's wonderful. Yeah? Well, are you a tither? Are you kidding? What's that? I don't know what that is. What do you do when somebody needs healing? Well, I don't know. 
I mean, we don't have a theology to back up what we're trying to live out. It's, not, it's more than experience. For me, I believe it becomes first experience. I think we experience God. But then we need to know God. And it's very important that we understand Him the way He wants to be understood. Is that fair to say? You know, I, I'm not, I don't want to talk about Him like He's not in the room. <laughs> he's here, right? We're responsible. We're accountable. He loves us. But we want to get to know why he loves us. We want to know what pleases and is displeasing. We want to understand what it means to live in grace and be forgiven and to not have condemnation. What happens? I didn't didn't open the Bible once. I I didn't even use my notes. Do I have notes? I don't know. Yeah, here they are. Well, wait a second, see if I covered everything. Uh, we're gonna we have communion this morning. Let's let's do that right now, and then we'll go. I wrote down here what happens when you try to live the independent American, fiercely isolated cultural life and Christianity together. What happens? What do you end up with? I wrote down these things. This is not an exhaustive list. It's just things that I thought of. What do we get? We get loneliness. We get isolation. We get therapy. We get medications. We have sadness. We become victims. Depression. And then I thought, well, I quit writing this list. This list is depressing. I thought, what about if we took 1 Corinthians 13 and we, you know, love is what? Love, joy, the fruit of the Spirit. And we went to Galatians 5 and Talk about love and talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness. Everything you would have is the opposite. You wouldn't have love. You'd be living in hate. You wouldn't be finding peace. You'd be disturbed. You would, you'd just work it backwards and go, wow, without living in community in the community of Christ together, I'm going to have all the opposites working at me. But I'm telling myself, oh, no, I'm filled with the Spirit. I can have the graces of the Spirit. I will live in the gifts of the Spirit all by myself. Really? How are you going to love one another? There's nobody up but, but you. How are you going to forgive somebody when there's nobody there but you? Right? Am I just kind of banging my drum here? I hope it's making some sense. I'm a ruined Christian. I want to be a ruined churchianity guy. I would like to be Christian again. I would like to look at some of these things and go, wow. There's more to life than what I'm getting out of it right here. It's just coming and going and coming and going. Even now, we're going to do communion. And I've got another book. I'm glad I didn't put it up here. It's called Pagan Christianity. That'll mess with your brain. That's a tough book. But it attacks the things that we do and not even knowing why we do them. You know, why, why is there a pulpit? Why are all you facing this direction and I'm not going this? Why is that? Because it started back in the Greek theaters and it worked to teach stuff there and they thought the church said hey we should do it we should try it that way and do it and see if it works for the church and we've been sitting like this for 1700 years that's why I like the cell there's no pulpit it's on your couch it's in your living room it's comfortable it's got popcorn and stuff and (laughs) snacks and prayer and life together it's real it's real And now we're going to do communion. And in pagan Christianity, this is one of the things that's attacked. I mean, it's hard to read this section of that book. 
Pagan Christianity. Author is. I do know. I just I have a wrong memory instead of RAM. <laughs> It'll come. It'll come before we're done. Uh, guys, go ahead. Hmm? Viola. Yeah, Frank Viola. Why couldn't I remember that? Yeah, in, in cooperation with George Barna. So, but see the communion we do now? Have you ever asked why? Why do I hold this little cracker and why do I hold this little cup? We know why we do it. We know how it's set up. We know what it represents. We, and there's nothing wrong with it. I've done communion, as I said, in Latvia and Russia with, with Coke and bread because it's all there was. We talked about the elements. We talked about why we do what we're doing. But the first communion was a feast. It was in hanging out together and eating together. I mean, Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 11. said, some of you guys are just coming to get drunk. You're not, you're not even waiting for the... You're, if you're hungry, eat at home. This isn't about having a Thanksgiving meal. We did it here, what, a year or two ago. We all came together at 8 in the morning together. And that was a, what we call the love feast what was called the agape feast or the communion where we realize we're sharing life together and that happens really good over a meal when you're breaking bread literally breaking bread and saying hey wait 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 that's my white meat you get the leg you're fighting with your brothers and sisters hey 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 not so many potatoes on your plate you know but you're and then things break down and life happens and you love each other and we need this. I'm going to cry. Bring that. Please help us. Save me. I want this so badly for the body of Christ. I want it for myself. And I feel like i got maybe 20 years to work on it. And to see if we can turn some of the things we do around. Thank you. Oh, I have one. Thank you. you know, go ahead. Serve and, and then we'll, we'll do together. As we, as we head for this part of, you know, symbolizing that we, that our most true communion, which means fellowship, which is the word koinonia in the New Testament, means sharing all things together. That's what koinonia is. We share everything together. I mean, my little cup came out of the same jug yours did, so we're sharing out of the same thing. My piece of broken matzah came off of a larger piece that yours came off of also, so we're We've parted them out already and we're sharing it together. And we know that the scriptures teach us that it is representative of the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus poured out for us, right? So it's not insignificant what we do or how we practice this morning. I'm just saying I would prefer... What, what George Hunter is saying in Celtic Wave of Evangelism, why don't we go back and find our real roots? Why don't we grab a hold of truth that causes us to understand we've got to live together? We have to work together. We have to go do this together. Can you imagine with me, as quickly as you can, the body of Christ in Big Bear? Maybe there's a couple thousand of us who all decided in one day we're going to do this. We're going to live together in community. We're going to work through our stuff. We're going to deal with our problems. We're going to love one another anyway and all the way through. And then we, we're living that in this community. 
what Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love one for another. How are they going to see that if we're not doing it? How are they going to experience Christ walking into Kmart? Uh-huh. Or Maggio's or State of Brothers or Vaughn's or the village if we're not carrying him with us in a living fashion where we know that this week I've already butted heads with one person in the body. I've already prayed through that. I've already got that worked out. We experienced communion. We had a meal together. We loved Jesus. We shared the word together. We worked side by side. We did something for Christ together. And then I go and take that into my community. And people look at you and say, this is something different about you. Well, yeah. Come live in my concentric circles. I got a house for you. You, you follow what I'm saying, right? I'm not saying let's build circles and houses. I'm just saying we're, we want to invite them to come closer to the community of believers so that they can be spoiled again. Why don't you come let us spoil you? You look like you're hurting. You don't have what you need. Maybe among us we have what you need. Maybe we can find it. You need a car? Maybe we can find a car. You need a meal? We can find a meal. All of us have an extra meal somewhere. We could do that. Mm-hmm. Why would you do that? Well, because I met this Savior. That's why I would do it. Because I met Jesus. And he changed my life. He lifted my sin. He set me free. He forgives me every day. He invites me to his table. Heaven is in my future. Yeah, that's why I would do it. And I'm not the only one. I'm doing it with a whole bunch of people. We've found it. I think there's a book, isn't it? What's the name of that book? They found the secret. That's another good book. They found the secret. I mean, this is a story of people from all different kinds of religious backgrounds in Christianity. You know, Lutherans, Catholics, Presbyterians, or whatever they are. And in it, they found living a life of the Spirit. And all of them testified of what happened when they finally ran into it and went, this is it. It was always with other people. Oh, Father, thank you for the opportunity to vent my soul. And I pray your blessing upon my family here this morning. Father, if in any way I have stepped over a line that I shouldn't have, I ask you to forgive me. But Father, I pray that you would bind us together in Christ. God, that this communion would be more than just a piece of matzah and some juice. It would be a, a calling to us, a, a representation to us saying, I'm alive in Christ and I'm connected to others. And this communion of the saints is just partially mine while I share it with others as well. It's not an individual communion this morning. It's not an isolated event for me only. It's because we're doing it together. Father, that you would Put it in our spirit. Birth it in us today if it has to happen today. Birth it in us today. A new view of reading the scriptures and seeing how it must be done together. I ask it in Jesus' name and we honor you this morning, Lord Jesus, with this bread. You said this is my body broken for you. And to do this until you return. And this morning we honor you, Lord Jesus, and we remember that you you let your body be brutalized for us so that we could be healed. 
We celebrate you together in Jesus' name. Let's do that. Lord, you, after supper, you took the cup and you said, this is the blood. This is my blood, which makes a new covenant. Lord, you made the first covenant go away. The law-driven, I got to do better, work harder covenant is gone. And you said we can walk in by grace, admitting our failure and saying we can't do it. We can't measure up. We need your life in us. And Lord Jesus, your blood sealed that new covenant for us. May we live in it today. May we fully depend upon you and one another to live this out until you come. Lord, we celebrate this until then in your name. Thank you. Thank you. As they're collecting your cups, I just want to remind us what we heard this morning from the body. I'd like to see more of that. That happens in life groups, cell groups, I hope. Then Isaiah 40, 11, he's our shepherd. He will lead us, carry us in his bosom. We also heard that if we would listen, we would hear his voice. He was, his promise to us this morning is that he would be with us, not just push us out in front or run ahead of us. He would be with us as we went and that he would lead us to a safe haven. We also heard Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. It says in that Psalm 103, don't forget his benefits. We need to remind ourselves. And let me send us out together with 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 14. It's the, one of the New Testament benedictions, if you will. Finally, brothers, farewell. Become complete, mature, fully grown. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I think I might like that part. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. Be with you all. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for doing this.